everybody. Welcome back to the Scripture Study Project, our podcast that gives you a fresh and faithful study of the scriptures that will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you're learning to others. This is part two of our two-part episode on the war chapters. I am Zach, this is Krista, and we are really excited to dive in. Um, as we mentioned, we are excited to start sharing some of your study tips. And today we actually have a husband tattling on his wife for some of her study habits. So this study tip comes from Garrett Shields, who is has actually been a guest on our podcast on the Isaiah chapters and a friend of ours. And we just love this study tip because it goes along so well with what we're teaching about this week, um, about this ep- in this episode. So what he said is, Carly has been studying in the mornings, and if Sarah wakes up, that's their daughter, she's three, four, four years old, I think, and if Sarah wakes up, she takes the time to finish her study. She doesn't just stop. She actually gives Sarah an iPad and lets her watch the scripture story videos on Gospel Library. In fact, Sarah now calls that her scripture study too. Sometimes we may feel like we have to stop studying when the kids are around, but now Sarah knows her mom studies the scriptures, and Sarah does her own version of scripture study. Isn't that awesome? What a what a base, a foundation you're building through that example. I like the study tip because it shows, I think, the 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 dedication to studying even in the midst of life. And what a cool what a cool memory Sarah's going to have growing up, learning that she studied her scriptures with her mom. That's and that it was a priority for her mom first mm-hmm. thing in the morning. And like I said, that goes along with what we're talking about today. You remember last time we talked about the protection um, of the personal self. And as we go move on in the word chapters right now into these 50, Alma 53 through 62, we're going to be focusing on a lot of what we can do to protect our families and um, our homes. So if you remember, we left off the war chapter story with a reversal of fortunes up to the point before, Moroni, Captain Moroni, had been winning every single battle. But because of the king men, he had to go back to Zarahemla to fight this civil war. And because of that, the Lamanites start to gain control. And they start to take over these border cities. Some of these cities that Moroni had spent so much time fortifying, the Lamanites now start to take over. And he, Alma, or uh, Mormon, who's narrating, describes it this way, 53 verse 9, And thus, because of iniquity amongst themselves, yea, because of dissensions and intrigue among themselves, they were placed in the most dangerous of circumstances. To pause for just a bit and make the connection between what's happening here and what we see happening often with our families today, you don't have to listen to more than a couple of talks in general conference to know that prophets are warning about the most dangerous of circumstances in which our families exist. Never in the history of the world has there been so much attacking every aspect of the family, from its definition to its constitution, to its functions, to its purposes, its roles, um, its livelihood, everything. And so as we read the most dangerous of circumstances, I think if, if you're listening with a modern ear, this could be easily applied to you. And I'm going to be quoting a few times from 
this talk from Sister Jones, April 2017, A Sin-Resistant Generation. She says, There are children who struggle to stand steadfast and immovable, and whose delicate minds are being wounded. They are being attacked on every side by the fiery darts of the adversary, and are in need of reinforcement and support. They are an overwhelming motivation for us to step up and wage a war against sin in our effort to bring our children unto Christ. Today the war continues with increased intensity. The battle touches us all, and our children are on the front lines facing the opposing forces. Thus the need intensifies for us to strengthen our spiritual strategies. So to set this up, I want to point out one contextual and even literary detail about the Book of Mormon in these in Mormon's narration that I think will help understand where these particular war chapters fit, where the story of the army of Helaman, which is where we're going to be focusing, where it fits. One of the things that Mormon loves to do in his narration is to write parallel narratives. So what he'll do is he will tell you a story, and then he'll tell you another story right after it that is really, really similar to the first story with just a couple of differences. And it's those couple of differences that he wants to highlight. Um, it's not as blatant as a bad example and a good example. In all of his cases, it's a good example and a good example. But what he wants to do is show you a good example and then show you a good example that's even more outrageous than the first one. So, for example, Mormon begins the book of Mosiah by recounting King Benjamin's sermon. Then, almost immediately after that, he tells the story of Abinadi and King Noah, and he recounts much of Abinadi's sermon. And there has been a scores of research on this, um, connecting Abinadi's sermon to King Benjamin's sermon. There are so many connections that in, all, in some places it almost looks like they're giving the same sermon. In fact, some people have even guessed that Abinadi, because his sermon chronologically comes before King Benjamin's because of the whole time warp thing, some people have even guessed that Abinadi is the angel that comes to King Benjamin and gives him the sermon. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but there's an example of parallel narrative. Then Mormon does it again with the missionary chapters. He talks about Alma and Amulek who go on these great missions to Nephites. And then he talks about the sons of Mosiah who go on these great missions to the Lamanites. And again, it's even more unbelievable. Well, he's doing it again in these chapters. Moroni, Captain Moroni, is incredible. But what happens when you take away his military prowess? take away the armor, take away the trained soldiers, and instead put a missionary in charge of an army of a bunch of untrained 2,000 Lamanite uh, sons and see what happens. If it's amazing to watch Moroni win his battle, it's even more amazing to watch Helaman and his 2,000 stripling warriors win theirs. It's as if Mormon wants to show you, look, God blessed King Benjamin, and he can bless Abinadi who was in a worse situation. God can bless Alma, and he can bless the sons of Mosiah in an even worse situation. God blessed Moroni, and he can bless Helaman. He's trying to exaggerate and highlight Helaman's story so that you can see just how good and how powerful God actually is at helping us fight those battles we need to fight. Yeah, that's really cool. I love that thought. Well, and it's, it's even cooler to think in the first, in Moroni's battles, he wins because of, they, they win because of Captain Moroni. In these battles, Helaman is almost a bystander. They don't win because of Helaman. It's not Helaman's military genius. In fact, there's very little account of anything Helaman does militarily to win the war or to win his battles. They win 
because of their families. They win because of their parents. And so what we want to do in this episode is talk about the families that created the soldiers. And hopefully by connection, we can learn some lessons about how we wage war in our own families and for our own families. And particularly talking about their faith and their faith that was central to their family and also to these wars, that the reason that they won and that's pointed out over and over again was because they were fighting with the strength of the Lord. In fact, Mormon, just in thinking about that, Mormon doesn't really, we know that Moroni was a revelatory individual. He did a couple of things that Mormon talks about. And like we mentioned last episode, it was the common practice among the Nephites to appoint a chief captain who had the spirit of revelation. So we know that Moroni was a revelatory individual, but Mormon doesn't really talk a lot about that. He's focused much more on the strategies. But with this story, it's nothing about the strategy. In fact, if Mormon narrates anything, it's to point out how outnumbered and outmatched the 2000 stripling warriors were and how they won despite that because of their faith in God, because of their steadiness and obedience. So, Yeah, and I think that's what kind of what we want to dissect today is he didn't give us strategies like he did in the last mm-hmm. our last episode that we talked about. And maybe we want to kind of dissect this a little bit. What were these mothers and fathers doing? What were the strategies that we think that they were using that we can apply to our families okay. today? So to dive in, first question is, what was it about these 2,000 warriors that made them so special? They're labeled the 2,000 stripling warriors. That's Alma 53 verse 22. And um, if you Google stripling warriors uh, or Helaman's warriors, you'll come up with a whole bunch of pictures. You can see the, the traditional picture the church has in, in the copies of the Book of Mormon, at least the older ones, that shows Helaman riding on a horse and these 2,000 stripling warriors that look like they could beat up Arnold Schwarzenegger in his heyday. Like they're just <laughs> ripped, right? 30-year-olds. Yeah. They're, they're, Men. They're bodybuilders <laughs> uh, extraordinaire. Well... You look up the 1828 dictionary, the word stripling, it doesn't mean, as, some, as I thought when I was a kid, it doesn't mean stripped. Like I always thought, oh, that just means they're shirtless. It doesn't mean that. <laughs> That's a funny one. I've never um, heard that. It doesn't mean strong. It doesn't mean brave. It doesn't mean courageous. Stripling, a stripling is a boy or a lad. If you look at the timing of the 2000 stripling warriors, they were too young at the time their fathers buried their swords to make the covenant. If you assume that eight is the age at which they make covenants, don't know if it was, but just to pick an age, this war, this battle, the the 2000 stripling warriors fight happens 13 years after that, which means the oldest of the stripling warriors are 21 years old. The youngest could potentially be 13 years old. We are talking about boys. These aren't hulking men. It's not their muscles. It's not their armor. They have never lifted a sword in their life. It's not their culture. Their fathers promised not to do it. So they're untrained. They're outmatched. And they're facing off against some of the biggest and hungriest and bloodthirstiest of Lamanite armies. And so how do you get kids like that? As you read the story of the stripling warriors, how do you you get that? How do you get your own stripling warriors? How do you do that with the children that belong to you, that are in your home? How do you do that with your your Sunday school class? How do you do that with your primary class? How do you do that with with the, the other youth or children in their ward? How do you get these kinds of stripling warrior children? Another quote from Sister Jones, perhaps we underestimate the abilities of children to grasp the concept of daily discipleship. President Henry B. Iron counseled us to start early and be steady 
So a key to helping children become sin-resistant is to begin at very early ages to lovingly infuse them with basic gospel doctrines and principles. I think that's what they were doing. Mm. They were doing exactly what we talked about on our study tip. They were giving examples. They were infusing their lives with faith and with examples. And from, from birth on. Yeah, that's from been very the last early 13 ages. Years for them. They are, we cannot underestimate the ability to receive faith-filled experiences that kids can have. Yeah. There's that talk that you always quote. Um, is it Hubie Brown? Yeah. We can't... Vision sne- of the Ironic Priesthood. Yeah. Yeah, where he says, we can't sneak up behind the kids. Oh, and- the charted course. Yeah. 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 Is that President the one? J. You say Clark. it because you're better than Well, that. just that, that we, we... It was directed to seminary teachers, but it could easily apply to parents. That, oh, I think it wholeheartedly it does. That these are spiritually spiritually savvy, spiritually mature, gifted youth that we're working with. They have experience. They come from a chosen pre-mortality. So we don't have to whisper religion in their ear or sneak up behind them and cloak it in a guise of worldly entertainment. We can just give them religion straight and undiluted. And we should, and we should do it often, and we should do it early, and we should do it regularly and in-depth. And that, if especially if you are comparing what we are facing today, which Sister Jones does, and she quotes other prophets who do, is the war that our youth and that we are facing and our children are facing today with them is just the same as this. And we need to be confident in their abilities to learn and grow in faith. Here's a cool part of the story. This is in Alma 56. Um, up to this point, the 2000 stripling warriors haven't actually engaged in a battle. Um, they've served as kind of a decoy. So they march by this city that the Lamanites occupy. The Lamanites empty the city and start chasing the the, the Lamanite army, the 2000 stripling warriors. And then hidden is another Nephite army that chases after the Lamanites. And so they're marching, Helaman's army, followed by a Lamanite army, followed by another Nephite army, as they walk away. And eventually, Helaman turns around and notices the Lamanite army isn't behind him anymore. And he's guessing that they turned around and are fighting the Nephite army trailing them, Antipas's army. And so I love this. Helaman turns to his sons. This is Alma 56. And he says, verse 43, And now... Whether they were overtaken by Antipas, we knew not. But I said to my men, Behold, we know not, but they have halted for the purpose that we should come against them, that they might catch us in their snare. And this is the phrase I love, verse 44. Therefore, what say ye, my sons, will you go against them to battle? And now I say unto you, my beloved brother Moroni, is writing a letter to Moroni, that never had I seen so great courage nay, not amongst all the Nephites. Skip over to verse 56. Behold, to my great joy, there had not one of the soul of them fallen to the earth. This is after the battle. Yea, they had fought as if with the strength of God. Yea, never were men known to have fought with such miraculous strength. Remember, an untrained, unskilled teenage army. They fought with such miraculous strength and with such mighty power that they did fall upon the Lamanites and they did frighten them. And for this cause did the Lamanites deliver themselves up unto us as prisoners of war. That's incredible. And it comes from incredible parents. So what did their mothers do? What did their fathers do to get these kind of incredible youth? We have the oft quoted, the famous verse, which is Alma 56, 47 and 48. Yea, they had been taught by their mothers 
that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them. And they rehearsed unto me the words of their mothers, saying, We do not doubt, our mothers knew it. I found some other words that stuck out to me as they talked about, um, described these young men and maybe and what their mothers were teaching them and infusing into their lives. They were exceedingly val- valiant, courageous, um, for strength and activity. They'd been taught to walk uprightly, keep the commandments. And then I love these in verse 50, um, in chapter 57, it's mentions a few times, they were firm. Um, again, they were firm and undaunted. They were obedient and they performed every word of command with exactness. That's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Some of those things that um, I just feel really strongly about that their mothers had, well, it tells us their mothers had a strong part of what they were doing, especially if you think about how young they were. Um, One thing I like about that is, especially in conversations we've had recently, is they specific, Helaman specifically mentions, we doubted not our mothers knew it. And I think mothers are in a, a wonderful position to wrestle with both doubt and faith. I think the only way you can get to a place of saying, I don't doubt, is probably if you've wrestled with a couple of doubts on your own and have come through those doubts with faith. I don't think, obviously, these mothers are not women uh, that were, were raised in the church. Faith isn't the default setting for them. It's something they had to acquire. And along with that acquiring probably came some questions and some some doubts that they had to wrestle with. And so I like the image of a mom that's wrestling with her own doubts and her own faith, but comes out victorious in her faith and then passes that wrestle onto her children. I think that goes right along with what we were saying of that talk that I mentioned. Um, you know, we need to be very upfront and abrupt with what our what we're teaching our kids. Mm-hmm. It's okay for them to have struggles and doubts. We want them to feel those things because it will eventually make them stronger when they're faced with the real battle on their own, which these sons are facing. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sister Jones has a few recommendations. And I think, you know, we, we said that we don't really get many strategies um, from these verses, but I think we have some from modern prophets and from our modern leaders Sister Jones, she says, we must help them know without question that they are sons and daughters of a loving Heavenly Father and that He has divine expectations of them. That's her first, she gives a couple, right? And that's the first one she mentions. That's the first one she mentions. Help them know that And isn't that the base of everything? Mm-hmm. You teach them to know that they have value no matter how they perform. Which is more than just teaching it to them. This isn't an intellectual understanding. This is an in my bones, I get it that I'm a son or a daughter of God, which means repetition. This is this is a daily, hourly thing that mothers are stressing and teaching to their children. I get emotional just reading that, mm-hmm. and I didn't expect to. Um, and I think it builds on this next one. The second, understanding the doctrine of repentance is essential for becoming resistant to sin. Being sin-resistant doesn't mean being sinless, but it does imply being continually repentant, vigilant, and valiant. Don't those words sound like stripling warrior words that we just read? Um, Vigilant, valiant, and continually repentant. To know, to teach them, I don't think there's any better way to teach them the value of who they are and that they are a loving, they have a loving father in heaven than to teach them and help them feel repentance. 
and that there is the ability to change and become better. What a better way to know that God loves you always than to allow your children to make mistakes and have them feel what it feels like to have a father in heaven that forgives them so quickly, so readily, and so repeatedly. Mm -hmm. Perhaps, Sister Jones goes on, perhaps being sin resistant comes as a blessing from repeatedly resisting sin. Mm -hmm. We need practice, and our kids need practice too. We cannot let them, we cannot shield them too much. Mm -hmm. It is, there's too much war going on to let them, um, to shield them at home too much. Yeah, yeah. As far as their fathers, if faith is what they learn from their mothers, I kind of think obedience is what they learn from their fathers. Uh, And here's where I'm getting this from. So Alma 53, verse 21, uh, another kind of famous verse describing them. They were men of truth and soberness, for they had been taught to keep the commandments of God and to walk uprightly before him. And then the verse that Krista just read in chapter 57 They did obey and observe to perform every word of command with exactness. Now, here's where I get the tie to their fathers. We talk a lot about their mothers, I think, as we should. That's what Helaman emphasizes in that double listing in those verses. But they do mention their fathers. Verse 47, Now they never had fought, yet they did not fear death. And they did think more upon the liberty of their fathers than they did upon their lives. Now, this requires a little bit of jumping, but if you remember back in that story of their father's conversion, this is back with the sons of Mosiah, um, the famous event where they buried their weapons was a very symbolic and rich experience for these anti-Nephi-Lehites. And I want to read just a little bit of what the king of the Lamanites says, because I think you can sense the emotion they feel and where their obedience comes from. This is chapter 24 in Alma, verse 11. King of the Lamanites says to his people, And now behold, my brethren, since it has been all that we could do to repent of all our sins and the many murders which we have committed, and to get God to take them away from our hearts, for it was all we could do to repent sufficiently before God that he would take them away. Now, my best beloved brethren, since God has taken away our stains and our swords have become bright, then... Let us stain our swords no more with the blood of our brethren. They decide to bury them as a symbol for the fact that these swords had become bright. I've heard it taught and I've understood it myself when I was primary age that they buried their swords so they wouldn't pick them up again and be tempted to commit sin, which I think could be true and probably is true. But I think the bigger reason they bury their swords is this is a symbolic meaning to them that they are burying their sins, not in order to earn forgiveness, but because they've been forgiven. These anti-Nephi-Lehi's are obedient not to earn God's forgiveness, but because God has forgiven them. The king of the Lamanites is overwhelmed. He's amazed that a God would wipe murder out of their swords, would clean their swords from the blood of the people that they had killed. He's so overwhelmed by the generosity and the mercy of God that he says, I will be obedient to this covenant that I've made forever. And so when their sons go into battle, it's that liberty that they're thinking of. They're remembering the fact that God saved their fathers. And so when it says that they were obedient with exactness, this isn't because the 2000 stripping warriors have a white handbook and their mission present is telling them to be obedient. It's not because they need to be obedient for obedience sake. They're obedient because they have tasted the goodness of God and they know that their fathers have. And it's that memory that motivates them to be obedient with exactness. And what power comes from that example? I mean, they they saw how badly their fathers wanted to fight this, 
but instead they chose to keep their covenants. And that's powerful. This next quote from Joy, Joy D. Jones comes again from this talk, and this is actually why I came to this talk, was because of this. She says, There is unusual power in making and keeping covenants with our Heavenly Father. The adversary knows this, so he has obscured the concept of covenant making. Helping children understand, make, and keep sacred covenants is another key in creating a sin-resistant generation. And the practical application she gives here is, Teaching children to keep simple promises when they are young will empower them to keep holy covenants later in life. That's it. Help them make covenants when they're young. Yeah, and not just just show them that making promises builds integrity. It, it makes you feel valued. It brings, I mean, nothing like keeping a promise to make you mm. feel warm and fuzzy inside as a, as a kid and even as an adult. And that you make promises with God because God makes and keeps promises with you. Mm-hmm. Right, these these anti-Nephi-Lehi's covenant with God because God first covenanted with them. Let's always remember who starts the promise making and promise keeping. It's Him, and that's what motivates their sons thirteen years later to wage and defend themselves with obedience because of that covenant. If I can, I want to sneak in one last little tiny note that I just learned from Krista, um, and to which something I studied earlier in the week applies. There's one other reference to their fathers. This is in verse 27 in chapter 56. And now it came to pass in the second month of this year, there was brought unto us many provisions from the fathers of those my 2,000 sons. Now this might be a stretch. And if it is, just ignore me and move on. But I like the idea that the Lamanite fathers are the ones that send provisions and not their mothers. Traditionally, it's the mothers that are the homemakers. It's the mothers that provide, especially in the Book of Mormon, they provide the food, they provide the clothing, But not here. It's the fathers that send the provisions. And it could just be that they're sending weapons and that could be it. But one thing I do know is that consistently throughout the Book of Mormon, whether the Lamanites are good or bad, wicked or righteous, there's always the same comment made by prophets about the Lamanites. They may be bloodthirsty, they may be murderous, but their husbands honor and respect their wives and their children. Lamanite fathers are family men. Often, prophets will chastise the Nephites for not being like the Lamanites in that very thing. You're not treating your wives and your children the way the Lamanites treat their wives and their children. So I think that these Lamanite fathers are family men. And if that's true, then let me read to you this. 25 years ago, President Faust gave a talk that I've just recently discovered called Father Come Home. And I've highlighted a thousand different things in this. Um, But the one I like the most is this. He references the promise of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. And he makes this insight. Perhaps we regard the power bestowed by Elijah as something associated only with formal ordinances performed in sacred places. But these ordinances become dynamic and productive of good only as they reveal themselves in our daily lives. Malachi said the power of Elijah would turn the hearts of the fathers and the children to each other. The heart is the seat of the emotions and a conduit for revelation. This sealing power thus reveals itself in family relationships, in attributes and virtues developed in a nurturing environment and in loving service. These are the cords that bind families together and the priesthood advances their development. In imperceptible but real ways, the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul and thy home as the dews from heaven. And then this, and this to me is just chilling. I plead with you, fathers, come home. Magnify your priesthood calling. Bless your families through the sacred influence. 
and experience the rewards promised by our Father and God. If there's something to be learned from this stretched insight into the Lamanite fathers, maybe it's that. Fathers, come home. And one last quote from Sister Jones. Brothers and sisters, hold your little ones close, so close that they see your daily religious behavior and watch you keeping your promises and covenants. Children are great imitators, so give them something great to imitate. We are indeed helping to teach and raise a sin-resistant generation unto the Lord, promise by promise and covenant by covenant. End of quote. I don't know if there's something that um, Zach and I are more passionate about, (laughs) as you might be able to tell. We don't tear up very much, but I think we both did Mm -hmm. as we record these podcasts, but we both did in this. And I think for me, I can say that the reason I felt that is because I feel truth as we talk about this. It is the duty of mothers and fathers to teach and infuse and lovingly and often teach and testify of the Savior Jesus Christ and how much He loves our children and how much He loves us. We are so grateful you're listening. Thank you for studying these war chapters with us. Um, we're grateful you're listening along. Keep sending us your study tips, please. And yeah, let's subscribe, um, share the podcast if you um, feel the desire to do so, and keep keep the comments and feedback coming. We love to hear from you. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Bye.